You're listening to an ACA podcast. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us this afternoon for Near and Narm Artist Talks and Panel Discussion. Um, we're bringing together artists from our Near and Narm online program, um, and we're really excited to welcome everyone um, today. Uh, my name is Bianca Winataputri, and I'm the Public Programs Coordinator at ACA. To begin, I'd like to start by acknowledging that today I'm speaking to you as a visitor on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and I'd like to extend my respects to elders past, present, and emerging of these lands, and of the lands on which you are all joining us today from. I am zooming in today from my living room slash home office. Um, I am a Chinese-Indonesian woman in her mid-twenties. I have glasses on and I'm wearing a white-ish um, shirt. Um, I'm sitting close to my computer so you can only see my head and shoulders with blank white walls behind me. So today I am pleased to welcome Brooke Andrew, Artistic Director of Niren, the 22nd Biennale of Sydney, and our amazing Niren Arm artists, um, Justin Shoulder, Victoria Hunt, and James Tyler. So Brooke, I'll hand it over to you. Yama Bianca, Yama everyone. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. I'm so happy. I mean, you know, people just keep saying to me that Niren is the Biennale that just keeps giving, but really the artists are giving more and more and more. Yama Ngajingang and Daraga Ngaju Brook Andrew, Brook Garu Andrew, Ngaju Wuradjuri, and Celtic Nanawal. I pay my respects to the Bunurong, Bunwurong, and Wurundjeri Wurwurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation known also as Melbourne, and pay my respects, of course, to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And I'm just really so happy to be here with uh, Victoria, James, and Justin, because, you know, even in all of the height of the Biennale, James and Victoria and I have not even met in person. And so, uh, you know, something like this is a bit of a buzz for me, uh, doing, a you know, the Nidin, the Biennale, um, to work with so many incredible artists uh, right across the world and also of course in our own um, you know hometowns in throughout Australia it's just been a total blessing so I'd like to hand it over to uh, to you Victoria and then James and Chol uh, uh, James and um, Justin to uh, maybe introduce yourself tell us a little bit about yourself uh, thank you Brooke um, so uh... Firstly, I am speaking from the unceded land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation here in Newtown, in the inner west in Sydney. Um, I'm speaking from my living room, which is um, on the back wall, um, are photos of my family and my ancestors and other um, items, tonga, treasures that uh, make me feel really at home and I'm, I've got curly, reddy brown, frizzy hair with a, I'm wearing a dress and I've got a Ponamu greenstone um, necklace close to my chest. Um, and I'm mid-frame. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I was born on the land of the Yugembe people, up, uh, part of um, the wider Bundjalung nation up in the Gold Coast in Surface Paradise. Uh, so I'm Australian born, um, Māori, my, on my father's uh, side, I whakapapa back to connect back to uh, 
Ngāti Kahungunu, Rongawhakata and Te Arawa, and on my mother's side, English, Irish and Finnish. Uh, so, ko Tarawere Te Maunga, ko Tarawere Te Awa, ko Te Arawa Te Waka, ko Te Arawa Te Iwi. Ko Ngāti Hinemihi Te Hapu, ko Ngāti Hinemihi o Te Ao Tawhito Te Wharitupuna, uh, ko Wikitoria Aho. Uh, Namani, I'm James Tyler. Um, I'm a Ghana, Māori, uh, English, Irish and Scottish, Norwegian, um, Australian artist. Um, I'm meeting you from my home in Canberra on uh, Ngunnawal, Nambri and Nadigo country. Um, and I'm wearing a white shirt um and i'm on a white background and i have a nice mediterranean tan um and short dark hair um yeah a little bit about my practice so my practice is really informed by my heritage um so predominantly my practice has been about um basically australian history and the the tension between uh my Aboriginal ancestry being Ghana, as well as um, my British colonial ancestry. And I've also made work about my family from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, and the works have been very personal experiences of mine. They're where my contemporary um, history has kind of intersected um, mainstream kind of national narratives in Australia. Um, and they have my practice more recently has been predominantly photography, but it has opened up to things like food, um, cultural object making, uh, as well as photography. And during um, Niram and Niram Nam, I have showed my first video work, um, which you'll see a little bit of. Thanks. Hello, um, my name is Justin, Tapasiru Shoulder. Um, I'm calling you now from Gadigal and Wongal country of the Eora Nation. Um, I'm in my living room. Uh, the walls are turquoise. I have a very colorful poster behind me, which marks the performance I did last year um, and other objects from my uh, travels. Um, I'm wearing an orange shirt by House of Helmudi, which is my partner's label. Um, and it's covered in a leafy kind of design. Um, similarly, I have a bit of a tan because I went to the beach yesterday and I am in my mid-30s um, with short brown hair. Um, gosh, I, so, yeah, I'm a, a Filipino artist uh, mixed Tagalog-Ilocano and European uh, French-Irish. Um, I, when I describe myself often in the institution, I say something, but really the more I think about it, I think of myself as a storyteller and a creator of, um, a co-creator of spaces. So um, I often talk about the nightclub being my education, um, but I also have a university education in um, digital media. But I really think that my practice is so informed by such a particular lineage of um, queer 
performance art as well as um, more ancient forms of storytelling. I co-create spaces with my partner, Matthew Stake. Um, we've been creating an event called Monster Gras, which is a kind of alternative Mardi Gras event at the Red Rattler Theatre for the last 12 years. Um, I also create, uh, I'll co-create events with my good friend, Benji Ra, who's um, also the Filipino diaspora. And we've been making films and balls and a kind of very wide range of um, art forms uh, for the last five years. Yeah. Thank you, Justin. Victoria and James, I should say I'm wearing a black t-shirt. I've got my long hair pulled back. So it kind of looks super short at the moment. And um, have a, I'm in my studio actually, some art wrapped up. Actually, this is Nongana Marawili's work, who was actually in the Biennale of Sydney, but I can't wait to get it out. Um, but we're here really to talk about you know, the, the, the three video works, which are Pada Niran Nam, and I was so happy to hear from Max and Annika from uh, Aka to really kind of, you know, bring a film festival-esque uh, presentation of, of Niran to the world via Melbourne. And I, I, because of COVID, you know, the Biennale, as, you, as most of us probably listening here, um, you had to close down for some time, but did reopen. But the thing is, is that often film uh, or video presentations is kind of lost. You can't take a photo of that. You can't do a snapshot of that video. Uh, but before we get into us talking about storytelling, language, repatriation, country, uh, healing, all of the powerful, uh, inspiring uh, motivations, everything that these three artists do, I think we could maybe just see a little snippet of their work. I'm hoping that you've all seen their work in full, but let's just play now just there's going to be six minutes i think it's about two minutes little snippets of um victoria james's and um and justin's work Thank <laughs> you. 
Take. 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 Okay, that was really fantastic to, I, get, I just get so emotional every time I see these, uh, these video works, um, even on a small screen. I was very lucky to see them um, at, uh, of course, Nedan in Sydney, but also um, in Aka, but of course, uh, my God, they're loaded with so much that um, we don't have enough time today to talk about, but I really wanted to, um, kick it off really by inviting the three of you to talk about the really deep expressions within your video works and how it was that you came to actually present the kind of the substance of this within video. I mean, video is such an interesting medium and they all come from interdisciplinary practices, from performance to making to sculpture. Uh, to collaborative practices and they're so steeped really within your kind of everyday community personal lives and I was just wondering if um, each of you maybe James you can talk first and Justin and Victoria in order of the of the filming of the you know the little snippets of those videos and maybe just talk about what that experience was like I mean James you were mentioning this is the first time you've created a video like this and I remember when we first talked about that um, and what it meant for you uh, so it'd be really great to kind of kick that off and then maybe you know, the, the four of us can have a chat around those conversations. 
Yeah, so I this is my first video work and I kind of, I mean, I wanted to go, I really enjoy bushwalking and so I had spent some time taking video on Cardo, Padinga, um, Kangaroo Island uh, back maybe three years ago, I want to say. Um, and essentially I walked part of the area that was burnt in the recent bushfires last summer and it was on the western side of the island. Um, and so I, I spent four days walking, filming um, and just spending time on, on Carter. Um, but it's kind of a, it's a weird space culturally for Ghana people. So it sits at the end of the Fluria Peninsula on the most southern part of the Ghana boundary. And it's a shared space between um, Rum and Jerry, who are a clan of Nut and Jerry, as well as, as um, Papananga um, people, which is the southern Ghana people. And the island had been cut off from the mainland from about 10,000 years ago when the, the seas rose up. So Ghana and Nudinjeri people had been on the islands, on the, on the island for maybe 50,000 years. And so it's got a rich cultural space, but it still has stories. Um, so Ghana have two names for it, Kata, which just generally means island, and Papananga, uh, which means the dead place. And so um, Ghana people in the south face um, their dead towards the island when they bury them in the grave um, as a cultural ritual looking back at this place. And it ties into cultural Nut and Jerry stories about um, how the island was cut off. So um, without going into the story too much because it's not really my cultural story, but the island, when it rose up, um, two women in the Nut and Jerry story about the island becoming an island rather than part of the mainland, they drowned in the passage over. And then the man who asked the water to come up uh, sat under a she-oak tree and the sound of the she-oak tree was the women screaming. So it's it's sort of in the forming of um, Carter as an island, it basically became quite a dark kind of cultural space and so this idea of like the island, the dead just keeps on reoccurring. So there's that part of the story, but then people stopped going there about 2000 years ago. Um, and then it became this advantage point where um, when the sealers colonised South Australia and the first um, Europeans were actually Americans um, that colonised South Australia. And then it became a whole series of whaling stations. Some of my... Um, European ancestry also were some of the first um, people on that island as whalers. And they used to kidnap Aboriginal women from Tasmania, um, Gunditjmara, uh, Nudinjeri and Ghana, particularly more Ghana and um, Palawa Tasmanian people because those places were easier to colonize, like easier to pick people up rather than the rough shored coast. Um, and so there's this real story of, um, slavery on the island and then there was actually a firm trade and of women and so as my film kind of goes through it references these stories um, in a very subtle way so you kind of approach from the sea looking at the island across the passage where the women drown and then as you move on to the island there's little references to these cultural stories as you go through um, 
so it's yeah for me it's it's a very um abstract silent film that just shows you the visual references to those narratives and also we didn't get to see it but there is a lot of language which is really beautiful to see that kind of looks handwritten in a way in the original um film uh Maybe could you just mention a little bit about language and, and the kind of empowering motivation for that for yourself? And for... Yeah, well, language has been an interesting one. So it's come in and out of my life at different parts. So, like, I grew up um, in not on Ghana country, so I didn't have access to Ghana language, but I grew up in Menindi in far west New South Wales. So I was learning Barkindji, and Barkindji actually has some similarity in language. Actually, we share a lot of words. Um, even though we're so far away from each other, it's just a bit of an anomaly. So I, I grew up with language and then I moved up to the Kimberley and a lot of Aboriginal people working up there when I was in my teen years spoke a Nunga Creole. So I grew up with language and then when I was living in Adelaide, I found out exactly where my Ghana ancestry came from and then there was the access to learning Ghana language. So... It's just been this ongoing thing for about seven years where I've just slowly been building it up. And we just, you know, like it's mostly what we use at home is like my son's name, middle name is Ghana, Mapu, um, Eastern Kual, um, which is his totem. And like we use a little bit of aversion language at home where we, if we don't want other people to know what we're talking about, we use uh, Ghana language. But I'm also constantly doing a lot of background research. It's not necessarily informing my practice, but trying to help and contribute to the Ghana language community. So I'm just starting to get my head around, like, building a basis of language. And so just to give people an understanding, Ghana was spoken, you know, for probably 60,000 years and it's changed over the years because there's long form words which means it's more recently formed um but it because of the co colonial process in south australia ghana people were physically removed off country and the only people who really were allowed off there during basically the years that people were racially segregated so that began in the 1850s and 60s and then people haven't really been able to come back since since 1967 so and language didn't really um wasn't really spoken since about 1930 i think the last ghana fluent speaker um sadly passed and then it was revived in 1989 and then um i think jack buckskin was the first fluent ghana speaker and taught his children and then since then he's taught some younger um people in the community who are now fluent speakers I'm not a fluent speaker, but I'm. that is my aspiration in life, is to be a fluent speaker and contribute to language revival and be just one little cog in a, in a larger, you know, reviving of the language. Um, but, yeah, I mean, language is just such a such a humbling thing. It's just it's a whole other way, way of seeing the world. I can't really explain it unless you're a bilingual person. It's really hard to understand. Um, like a Ghana worldview is so different to, you know, a British English worldview. It's just, they're just so, so different. Yeah. Interesting. My son's name is Marby, which is, of course, Wiradjuri for the Eastern Quarrel. So, I mean, there's very oh, really yeah. similar language lines there. Um, thanks so much, James. Justin, um, 
explosion of colour and like extraordinary um, spirit beings there as well. Uh, could you give us a little rundown on that? Because I, I know when we were first talking about this film, how important it was for you to uh, really embark on this journey. Yeah, for sure. I mean, initially for Niran, we were going to present a live work. So I was going to present a episode um, from a new body of work called Eon Dagger. Um, I've actually been working on, uh, I call it my body of work. It's called Phasma Hammer for the last 10, 11 years. Um, Phasma, spirit, hammer, kind of like the wounded hammer. So it's this kind of like, I guess, like a beastry of these uh, mythical beings um, with their seeds that come from club performance and an investment in mythology, both um, imagine, but also foundational in my um, Tagalog Ilocano ancestral um, lineage. Um, Ion Dagar kind of it imagines a, an ecology um, that is parallel to, our, to, to my own here. Um, and it's really an investment in, in craft, in, in performance, in collaboration. Um, I have to really acknowledge that that work is really part of um, the skills and artisanship of so many different people. Um, I co-created the film, particularly with Tristan Jale, who I work a lot with with Club Arte as well. He's a, um, a visual artist and he was the one who did a lot of the compositing and co-directed the work with me. And the soundscape is created by Filipino artist uh, Karina Leto, who I've been working with for the last um, five years, as well as with Liveworks as well. Um, Victoria Hunt's actually my mentor and collaborator as well. And we've been working together I mean, I've been training with her for almost 10 years on and off and then much more closely um, for particular works for the last five years. Um, gosh, it's such a hard work to describe, but um, it's kind of the introdu introduction to this, this space. Um, that's It kind of comes from the sky world as well. So in Tagalog mythology, there's a uh, base of creation um, and for the last with Club Arte as well me and Benji have been using that as a framework um, as a space of possibility both um, within our kind of participatory balls but also in the virtual space and and in filmland. Um, the the conception of work I was thinking a lot, it was just kind of coming out of the bushfires in March. Um, and I recently, I mean, the year before, I'd spent a bit of time in the Philippines, um, particularly in Bacolod um, at a festival called Mascara, which is, uh, they work heavily with pageantry. And um, we'd spent a lot of time in Tacloban as well with uh, trans, um, community friends there and a lot of time in the nightlife scene um, and I was thinking a lot about how you know the Sydney kind of club-based practice and the community work I was doing here and the types of storytelling motifs um, through spectacle and craft had such a deep connection to the kind of um, work I was seeing there as well um, and so it's a kind of meeting of it's I call it kind of like an eco pageantry so um, 
it's you kind of bear witness to these these beings that can transform and mutate, evolve and devolve in 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 a nonlinear fashion from um, mollusk to fungus to to bird to dinosaur. Um, and I guess it's trying to give this sense of beings emerging from ashes and the mark to co-create a, a, a resistant ecology. So, yeah, that's kind of the main um, impetus for it. And I imagine there to be other episodes, um, both um, live and, and in the film, film space. Um, yeah. In some ways, I mean, all three of your works do continue and reflect and mirror the, no. your kind of, you know, your, your, I suppose, the physical spaces that you're in. Um, and Victoria, I mean, your work when I first, when Pascal first showed me, you know, that, that video work, I was completely blown away by, uh, anyway, I, I would love to hear, you know, for you to share a bit more about. Mm. about um, well, my practice, um, has integrated um, a, a first love in photography and visual arts um, and how I kind of evolved into uh, performance and uh, embodied practice, you know, has been quite a journey. Um, the, just, um, I, I guess my path has been reconnecting back to um, my culture through very intuitive um, felt sensations through my body and through things that have kind of crossed my path or happened along the way. And, um, um, the, I moved to Gadigal Land, to Sydney in 2000 to join uh, De Quincey Company um, and start an apprenticeship with a, with a, a, a very significant mentor, Tess De Quincey. Um, and uh, without any um, sort of formal training, any um, certainly not, not dance training, a little bit like Justin, my dance training was very much on in clubland. <laughs> um, and also I have a background as an athlete um, as well. So, um, but the love for photography and visual arts um, really honed in um, uh, types of skills that became very, very important when I developed into wanting to understand how to transform and embody um, certain um, stories and certain um, relationships to land and relationships to um, what it is to connect to in Māori what we call the wider world, the spirit. Um, and again, it's a long story, but my journey back to the homeland in Rotorua to meet with family for the first time was when my uncle uh, took me to this empty grove in and explained that our marae, which is such an essential, uh, important, um, symbolic and actual sort of uh, place as a Māori person to be able to um, have a sense of belonging. It's for those who don't know marae, it's a it's the um, architectural representation of the body of an ancestor, but it also is an ancestor. So for, for Nati Hinamihi, Hinamihi is a female ancestor that she existed, you know, maybe 500 years ago. And through ritual and ceremony, um, 
that spirit was um, imbued into the carvings that constitute um, a, a marae. And those carvings are there to be decoded through ceremony and through ritual practices um, to bring the living in a, in a, in a relationship with the dead. Um, and, um, and so also for Māori, this understanding of time, that it's, it's very secular and we are moving backwards into the future. Um, so anyway, the significance of my uncle um, talking about our, um, our mountain and the eruption of Tarawera um, and that Hinamihi, this uh, ancestress, surviving and sheltering um, and protecting the descendants of Ngāti Hinamihi, who I descend from, um, but she wasn't there. And um, when he told me that she had been removed, um, and those processes of colonisation are very, um, uh, very deep and, um, and there's, there's so much misunderstanding. So because of the eruption, she was assumed to be abandoned, which she wasn't. She was there. Um, Arahui was placed on there to rest the land because it had become an Urupa, a cemetery, because of the uh, ancestral bones that were buried in Tarawera when the mountain erupted. Um, their ashes were blown around. And so that whole area um, you know, became the Urupa, a cemetery. So there are many reasons why we, uh, why the Hinamihi was assumed to be abandoned, but um, and the Governor General of New Zealand at that time, uh, it's very short term, but he sent agents out looking for a memento of his time in Aotearoa and um, a the purchasing or the acquisition of a fully carved meeting house um, was you know a prized. Um, aspiration and so there was there was a bill of sale that was drawn up and so this is a time where um, these documents would not have really had um, you know there was all these misunderstandings about what happened anyway she was acquired and removed and taken over to be in England um, so um, Take the film um, I guess another mentor of mine, Charles Corey Naiho, talked about, um, introduced me to this idea of a wakahuya, which is about a performance treasure box. And within it, um, like a waka is, is, a, is a canoe and a huya is the feather of, a, of now an extinct bird. And so it's this idea of a, of a, of a vessel that's holding something very precious within it. And so um, through Charles's uh, guidance, I was able to start thinking about my reconnection back to family and as a as a dancer and as a uh, choreographer, as a as an artist, how to create a, a wakahuya. And so, um, you know, 15 years. It took 10 years of these relationships of reconnecting back to family, going backwards and forwards, and learning about the eruption, learning about the trying to see myself through the the mind and the the bodies of the people at the time during these really intense um, ruptures. Um, and it took 10 years to really prepare myself to make the first solo work, which is Copper Promises. And so Take, that film, is, was initiated through um, a digital mentorship through the Opera House with Fiona Winning, who, um, who put me in a partnership with Margot Nash as an editor to look at this 
my research, which is this, you know it's quite extensive now, um, and figure out a way through a digital way of creating a, a wakahuya, um, which was transferred from the ephemerality of live performance into something you know that could be condensed into um, a version of a wakahuya. Thank you, Victoria, because um, this marae is really, it's, uh, its name is um, Hinemihi, is that right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and the body of Hinemihi, I mean, it reminds me of the Blacktown Native Institution and the Darug people. I mean, the Blacktown Native Institution is in Nidham and it's seen as like a, a Mother Earth. I really see that site as a living site. It is the first site of the removal of Aboriginal children in early colonial times from uh, Blacktown, the move to Parramatta. Um, uh, and so, um, was it matter first, but I mean, the, the kind of the resonance between, you know, the three of your practices is really very much about country, it's about storytelling, it's about the spirit, it's about restitution, repatriation, it's also about healing. And I was wondering, um, you know, there, there's so much power in, um, in sharing, uh, especially through, uh, through the digital media, through video, like, condensing this research, these journeys, these, this walking, this sharing, this collaboration, and to put it into this, this medium of film. And, and I was wondering if um, maybe the, you know, the four of us could have a conversation about what does that mean in regards to healing? And I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, is, is, is that possible? I mean, is it a journey of healing? Is it a journey of something else? I mean, what, what, what are those things to, to, to you three? The journey of healing, and just to respond uh, briefly, but um, I think the uh, the responsibility um, to uh, continue to honour Kinemihi, um, particularly the, while she's um, away, uh, and until she is returned, um, there's uh, there's she's not whole until she's returned back to her homeland to be with her people. Um, so. I, th I feel like the healing is, you know, partly uh, these video pieces can travel and uh, continue to um, honour and keep her warm and also, um, yeah, share her story. So I feel like that is contributing to that journey. Do you want to go, James, or...? Uh, sorry, um, my mic was off. Um, yeah, I guess for me, it's kind of, I mean, the colonial processes definitely contribute to a lot of cultural loss, um, both like in my family, but also in my contemporary experience. And I feel like what for Ghana, like, I mean, the, we've lost so much, but we've gained so much back through language. Um, and in the process of that, you learn about culture, about learning about language. And so I think in some way, the telling these stories or telling the story of um, Kata, um, it's basically like I then become the, the person who tells the narrative and repatriates the history of that. And some of the things that are, are not told, like the, the slave trade that existed on the island, um, by the whalers and sealers from like 1803 to um, 1836 before, you know, South Australia was officially colonised by the, the British, there was a slave trade where, you know, for 
five pounds you could buy an Aboriginal person and and it's documented but no one knows about it. And I think in being able to, these histories and the treatment of people and the brutality can never be forgiven but I think there is a level of closure that an individual can have when engaging with these histories, knowing that the contemporary community can express these stories on a essentially on a safe platform where we can voice it and give power to these histories. They, they, these histories can be taken in two ways. You can be empowered by telling these stories or you can be disempowered by not being able to tell them and having them denied. But I feel like when you speak language, when you talk about those histories, you then are empowered through that. And in some way, history and language becomes a weapon. So I think for me, I guess they are, like it heals something, but I think for me, to making the artwork was the closure that I wanted. I'm still learning so much about the island and it still continues to, you know, and I probably will never stop learning about it. Um, but I think in that process of telling it, they, you empower the stories, you empower people from the past and you also empower yourself and give your feet grounding knowing the history of your land as well. Um, yeah, I think my approach is so different and a lot of my um, research comes from not knowing or trying to find out stuff or feeling that um, I talk to a lot of other younger queer Filipinos of the diaspora and other diasporas and we talk a lot about the imagination of the motherland as much as the the knowing of the motherland and we frame a lot of our work as a type of future folklore um so it's you know the we we start to to understand and and hear oral histories and connect to um craft languages often through um storytelling or meeting people going to to places or to to our motherlands but also so much comes from virtual communities and um those types of sites of engagement. And, and I, sometimes when I enter these kinds of talks, I feel like there's a sense of lack, but actually I try to find us to think of it as a space of possibility. So um, the work, you know, I, I think a lot about ecological mourning and these beings and also with I guess it's like with working within trans communities as well it's about bodies of possibility um, narratives of resistance through our gathering and our representation of ourselves in this present moment so um, yeah I guess that's that's the way that I've been seeing video as a tool um, and and post this exhibition I'm really curious about a type of dissemination that is through those very um, accessible modes like Instagram and YouTube and getting a very wide, um, yeah, type of uh, space to connect. Because a lot of the community I've met is through those kinds of um, spaces virtually, especially at the moment when we can't gather. So, yeah. I mean, thank you so much. I mean, there, there, I mean, 
you know, we're kind of lucky, right, because we're, we're, we're with our people here, right? And I think that many of the audiences, especially the artists that were part of NEDM, were like, we were with our people. And, I, and the reason why I say that is because often Biennales are very Eurocentric, very North American, European heavy, uh, the kind of art stars, all power to it. But I think that, you know, one wonderful thing, even Jota Mabasa was saying, you know, when she came over from Brazil, Brooke, I've never been in a Biennale before. There are five other Afro-Indigenous, trans, queer, or whatever, you know, like people, or her people. And um, and, I, and I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about the decolonial, you know, like the, the Western museums, the kind of Western paradigm. There's a lot of heaviness around that, a lot of kind of pressure, like all of a sudden instant pressure to kind of fix the world really quick. There's a kind of a status quo about it, these dominant narratives. But obviously us and our communities and many other communities around the world, we've been in this kind of shadow areas we might peek out every now and then. And it continues, life continues, you know, there's this being kind of generation of healing, a generation of the conversations or the kind of future imaginings as what you're talking about, Justin. And, and also, uh, James, when you were talking about the acknowledgements of a slave trade, why are we so focused on the United States of America election and kind of everything that goes on there? We look at it as like the, the, the kind of powering future of democracy when really people are uh, supporting Black Lives Matters there. And thank God it came here and Indigenous Trans Lives Matters here. But many people still don't know about slavery. So I suppose that with that little, I won't go on too much, but there is a status quo, right? There is this dominant culture, but yet, you know, you're all kind of working in these spaces that, are still continuing. And I was just wondering if you could maybe, I don't know, have a, if you have comments about that? Like when someone comes up and says, hey, do you want to decolonize this? I mean, what does that actually mean for you? Something that's coming to my mind at the moment is um, sort of realizing even just in that little two minute video, um, um, Kinemihi's carved like the pare which is a carved door lintel which actually represents um the the pelvis of uh Hinimihi. and that piece of carving disappeared it never arrived in england or if it did it was gifted and then it went in and out of the underground market and then it resurfaced in paris for two million um in 2006 um and then it sort of has disappeared again and so Kind of embedded within take which is to challenge or take issue um is um is is her pelvis is that is the pare um and some information about um about that current kind of conditioning um but it's also that's the pivot point for the protest work that's the pivot point for the future in terms of what my um calling is as well is for Hinamihi to be returned and to um, you know, bring that through whichever way I can, you know, as an artist, as a, as a descendant um, um, of Hinamihi. Um, but also possibly, you know, the party might be seen by someone watching the film or someone who might be able to you know, these things, these, the, the, the energy and the Māori around the Tonga um, you know, work in such mysterious ways. And so there is a hope also that if this film may somehow be able to bring something that can enlighten how to move forward to, to bring her pelvis back with the other 26 carvings.
Yeah, I um, I don't know how well I'm going to answer the question, but essentially um, we, like in the Ghana language community, we were looking for a word that, it, um, well, looking for multiple words, indigenizing and decolonizing, and what would that be in Ghana language? And it was a really interesting moment because we were just trying to kind of sum up a way of talking about how language reclamation has come about. And it was interesting. So what what is this word and what does it mean and how complicated would this word be? You know, like we don't even have a word for colonisation. We have, there's been recorded proverbs and stories and stuff like that that sum it up in multiple words, but then we don't have a word for it. And then straight away someone just had a lightning bolt moment and they came up with the word uh, yacha apa indi, which means, um, yacha means Aboriginal person, just generally, not just Ghana. It just means proper or or fresh or, but essentially the word is proper and the word is indigenous. And then there's this upper Indi. So you put upper Indi after a word of an animal because that's you transforming into the animal. So if my son was to transform him into his totem, it would be Mapu Upper Indi. And so you'd transform into that. And so it's like a, it's a very Ghana world view way of seeing this thing. So, so what is decolonization on Ghana Yata or on Ghana land? What is it to decolonize or indigenize? It is to make indigenous again. It's to make proper again. And those things, so for me, when I think about that, like, I mean, decolonization and indigenizing and decolonizing institutions, biannuals, and all these things are very complicated when we think about all the different Indigenous people who are challenged by these spaces and by this Euro-American um, institutional kind of Western gallery space. I kind of think about we all bring different ways of decolonizing this and it's a very complicated space as people who were colonized by Euro-American culture and still continue to be but we also insert ourselves into these spaces. And I think about it in Adelaide, a million people on Ghana land, like when will they, when will they start to turn into proper Ghana people? You know, when will they start to evolve their culture within our space to see our world, you know? So I always just think that that's a really a beautiful kind of, Ghana world view of seeing that process, at least on Ghana Yata. I mean, it's different for different different peoples challenging the system that is largely has equality issues all through it, or inequality issues all through it, um, in the way that they've dispossessed Indigenous people across the the known world. Like, I think that for for my way of thinking, that is definitely what one of them, and I can. Um, as a Maori person, I can also um, can completely understand Victoria's work in seeing that world view from knowing it, from thinking about it in that headspace. So I think it's, yeah, you know, it's interesting, this idea of decolonization. It means so many different things to different people. Yeah, and certainly, you know, the idea of an artifact as a lifeless object um, versus uh, an ancestor you know, and that it's not an it, it's a she. Um, and, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree in the sense that, you know, art, 
artifacts are an embodiment of an ancestor. So essentially when they're held in a museum collection, they're incarcerated in many ways and dispossessed of their homelands. They're not, well, to use a, a Ghana phrase on country, they're not back home, you know, they're not. So in many ways they're just dispossessed. And so, I mean, until those, till cultural artefacts that embody ancestors, uh, until they're really repatriated, our history is not repatriated. We're not, we're not at this point of reconciliation um, until those wrongs have been fully rewritten. Mm. Yeah, and rematriation is something that I feel is what we're working towards also with Hinamihi as a female ancestor and what it is to rematriate. Um, and hokainga is uh, a beautiful Māori word for ho, the breath, and kainga, home. So the breath, calling home through the breath, um, which is what will will bring wholeness. But until then, uh, she's not a restoration project, or she's a repatriation or rematriation project. So it challenges those ideas of conservation. Um, and also um, in terms of economics and custodianship um, as well. But yeah, the gardener in Plandon House in the UK sees her more than her descendants and her people and without any kind of deep connection to her. It's a strange situation. Yeah, I mean, this kind of preservation or primitivization or incarceration, James, it's such a, a powerful word to use. Um, and it is so true. I know that a lot of us as Indigenous people feel that and the museums that are overseas, they're custodians to objects that really that I understand. But I want to come back to this idea of futurism because I know, Victoria, you really kind of uh, presented uh, a kind of a futuristic longing, really, or kind of like manifestation of what this film means, what, you know, can people see within that, you know, to see her pelvis, you know, can it come back? Same with you, James, you're kind of talking about like a futurism and Justin, you've kind of been there a lot. I know that a lot like Jota talks about this futurism and her work is very powerfully embedded with that. I know that yours work and, and also um, Benji's and many other uh, artists are also kind of looking at a different kind of futurism that uh, it is this kind of status quo that, pe that people talk about. And I was just wondering if you could touch on that, Justin, like, you know, what is that kind of futurism that you're talking about that's very different to the status quo? Um, I guess, I mean, we all, yeah, we frame it as our future folklore. I was, it's so based in relationships and it, and it very much, as much as it seems far reaching and, and often people will think, you know, like all these kinds of references to science fiction, all these kinds of like pop cultural reference, I guess it's essentially like we're finding a particular language and these mo motifs and and often things that are nonverbal, um, like a lot of, I guess, the types of futurism or motifs come from clubland because it's in these spaces that we can communicate um, with our spirit in in a very kind of supportive environment. Um, so it's it's through the lace, it's through the flourish of typography. It's um it's in a particular intonation of a beat. Um, so Corinne, my collaborator and composer, um, she was referencing she she makes contemporary techno, but she also was working with 
the Kulin Tang. And so we were looking at particular ancestral instruments from both our, um, so she's from the Tao community um, and I'm Ilakana Tagalog. And so we were, I guess it's like, we were curious about how those things can be refracted and reimagined. So we're often not sure if, what are we allowed to do, what we're not allowed to do, but we try things out. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's a good answer. <laughs> um, what else, futurisms? I mean, it, it is a kind of combative language and, and, and a lot of us are doing it in spaces often that aren't seen as well in, in kind of more hidden spaces in, in our gatherings and um, in the balls online, um, cultivating those types of, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think the more, the more I think about it, the more it's something that's hard to describe because it is very intuitive. And that's something I'm leaning more and more into is really listening beyond my rational kind of, um, and academics. So, um, yeah, community motifs that are also global within the queer space, um, within PO, um, BIPOC communities. So, yeah. I mean, the, the three of you really use your bodies, you know, yeah. or your hands, your creating objects, or your, I mean, that, that powerful presentation of yourself, Victoria. I mean, you know, and also you just, I mean, all of you use your body to connect. And, um, uh, you know, this is a kind of a transformative, empowering uh, well-being. Uh, I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about that. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. So, you, um, you go, Vic. <laughs> um, I was just noticing when I performed Copper Promises last year in, in Turtle Island, there are aspects of that work where I'm dancing, you know, um, you know the eruption of the of the mountain and uh, the the spirit of uh, of like a desolate landscape dance of alienation the dance of rupture and of trauma and also also um, but but within that uh, there's a, a kind of metabolizing of that trauma when um, I was I found myself cr um, crying whilst performing that work but. It wasn't, it was just water coming out of my eyes. And it was, I kind of realized because I first started, it took 10 years to make that solo work. So it's got a lot in there. And then it's an intense um, collaborative solo um, that, um, that I've been carrying since 2012. And so I've matured. And the whole relationship around Hinamihi with the British National Trust and the movement has progressed in terms of bringing her home. And so I feel like as a, I'm, I am the house and the house is me is, uh, is a relationship that I have. And so I'm learning so much about um, Hinamihi through this intimate kind of relationship about dancing um, her liminal thresholds that are teaching me so much and allowing me to connect um, with so much as well. Um, but the, um, yeah, I think the embodiment of, um, and even the matakiti, which is a seer, like I feel like futuring is something very indigenous, 
Like I feel, you know, the the fact that I can kind of recite my genealogy 26 generations back to Natoroidangi, who was the navigator of the Tiarua canoe that came to Aotearoa, like that foresight to be able to somehow lead that, leave that information for someone like me to be able to come back to and then understand um, that that lineage. I mean, that's that's something that I think as creators as well, with Justin, instead of thinking about you know making work for the the futures to come. So there's, I feel like that's a very indigenous way, and and you know, and just the relationship to dreams and with the matakite, which are the women who are seers, you know, and they were a part of kawakawa on their head and could sort of see beyond into other dimensions and be able to travel and then bring back information. So. This is very, you know, I feel that this is very embodied. Oh, I was listening so deeply. Um, so <laughs> I just traveled somewhere else. <laughs> um, gosh, I might need a little prodding to, to <laughs> James, do you want to talk? Yeah, I can take over. Um, I think, yeah, we're thinking about like my current thinking around the way that I approach, because I've walked through the places that I filmed to engage with them. And I've done, I mean, I've walked 300 kilometres of um, the Ghana boundary line over multiple walks. And I think the whole kind of idea of that is walking country and connecting to place and the things that live there you know like it's thinking about it not so much as myself as being interwoven with you know there's 15 1500 different plants indigenous to the like to Ghana country there's um somewhere like 300 mammals there's I can't remember how many birds there are but there's just so much living there and it's their home it's their you know, that, that's their home as well. And you're intertwined through totems and all these different things. So when you're engaging and walking country and, and seeing plants and connecting with them, that is actually part of your identity, intertwined and woven through language and all these different things. So the way that you're not just, you're not just walking through there, you're kind of intertwined in a larger way of, you know, like, it's, I guess it's like it's kind of hard to explain. Like we have a word for these plants, you know, like they, they're part of our existence. And so I think when I go, when you walk country, you kind of are intertwined, engaging with that. They inform our design, our, yeah, just our cultural objects are made from this. It's the embodiment of this place. So I think when I think about my body in that space, that's kind of what I think about. It's not just cultural stories. It's just like it's everything, you know, like it's kind of kind of hard to, to explain because you can't kind of categorise this experience like Western science does. Like they name all these objects in a kind of aspiration to get to some Indigenous way of understanding self and country. Like it's, it's very, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. And... Um, you know, we, we we often talk about time, right? We stretch time. And um, unfortunately, we can't stretch this time <laughs> in our futurism. We're going to have to wrap it up. Um, but no, absolutely made 100% sense. 
sense. And I think that, you know, the way in which that the body connects to the past and the present and the present and the future. And, you know, the way in which all of your works you know, really weave this kind of metaphysical, spiritual sensibility of storytelling as well as is incredibly rich. Um, and I'm so grateful that all three of you could be here today. Um, so we have gone a bit over time uh, and I just want to encourage everybody who's out there listening to us uh, to uh, get online if you haven't already and um, soak up, you know, the fantastic works of not only James, just, uh, Justin and Victoria, but many other, you know, artists from, uh, from Niren. And uh, Justin, Victoria, James, did you want to say anything else before we sign off? Just thank you to everyone. I'm so grateful for this conversation. Likewise. Lovely to meet you, Brooke and James as well. <laughs> yeah, Victoria. I'm sure we'll catch up in Sydney soon. We'll have a big, you know, post-COVID party. <laughs> <laughs> Things can come up too. Mm. Take care.